Everybody's always looking for Jack In the fire and in the water Everybody's always looking for Jack On the streets and on the corners well, I always wanted to be like Jack He's as cool as they come well, I always wanted to be like Jack change in my long story had to be here for a service started today the way I do most mornings my version of the newspaper which is Fox Soccer on the web so I opened it up <clears throat> picture was of a club called Inter Milan and they were happy Filled with joy, hoisting a trophy. It's the uh, Club World Cup Championship, which is, I actually filled out a poll and described what I thought of that tournament, which is, it's a silly little tournament, and it really is. However, they were really happy. 
And uh, if you pick up that picture and look at it, you might say, well, they're, they're happy because a uh, photographer came up and said, hey, everybody, let's get together and let's have a portrait and smile. It's a little more than that because they won a tournament. But it's a little more than that because in the past year or so, they went from the heights of the soccer world to really struggling now and perhaps their coach getting fired. And, and so winning this, they were sort of under an ultimatum. Win this tournament, this silly little tournament, or you're out. And so there was a real profound sense of joy as they shared that moment together. But if you just pull the picture aside and say, hey, let's everybody give a big happy smile, it doesn't fully, it doesn't adequately express what's really going on. We often think of joy as a snapshot in moments. Joy is something we can manufacture. Joy is a part of a process, and it fits within a context of other factors in our lives. Joy is built over time. It doesn't simply happen. Joy is also elusive. My, it's elusive. The circumstances of our life often make joy very difficult to hang on to. And when disappointments and struggles hit, we try to quickly do something to fill that gap. Like the song, we go looking for something that is always in the next room. Never quite grasps it. In this series, with the elusiveness of joy and the importance of joy, because let's face it, everybody wants to be happy. What we're trying to figure out is, so what does it mean to live with a pervading and prevailing sense of joy? What does it mean for that to be the stable and constant point of your life? And the Bible actually addresses it and addresses it well. And last week we talked about the central concept of joy and the physics of joy, which is that we are made to be connected to the God of the universe in whose presence there is fullness of joy, at whose right hand there are pleasures forever. And so if we are connected, yoked to him, we experience joy. Today we're going to move on and look at another way that joy develops and deepens in our lives. And to do so... We're going to look at a passage, as, as Mark said, which is a core passage for Warehouse 242. It's where the 242 comes from. But I want you to understand the context of the passage. This is the passage, Acts 242 through 47, and they're gathering together, and they're eating, and they're praying, and they're, somebody's teaching them. And, and then it says, as they broke breads, they were ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Often what we do with Acts 242, though, is we take just the 42 out. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, breaking bread, and to prayer. And you go, boom, there's the church. There it is right there. And then we jump down, and they had glad and sincere hearts. Acts 2.42 is a moment. It's not a church. It's an evening. It's a gathering of people on an evening in a home. Acts 2.42 through 47 is the expression of what some evenings looked like in that period of time. But the period of time where that moment is set is much bigger. It's in a, a day. The day was a day we're going to look at in just a few moments. It was a day that reminds us that life is dynamic. When a whole series of events happened that were completely unexpected and a movement was birthed. But that day is set in a bigger context again. And it's set in a few-day period where 
the church really started as an entity where Peter preached his first sermon, which we'll look at in a few moments, and untrained, he preached a sermon, and it went really well. 3,000 people said, all right, we're in. And then they gathered together, and then they had this wild next day where Peter and John, now having preached a sermon, having 3,000 people came forward, now they're healing people, and then they're getting thrown in jail. And then they utter this incredible phrase, which really, I think, kick-starts the church and makes it move throughout the world when they're told, as they're taken into prison, they're told, okay, that, that healing was pretty good. However, stop talking about Jesus because it's going to cause problems. And they said, okay, we'll leave it up to you. You decide whether it's better to obey God or you guys. As for us, we can't stop speaking of what we've seen and heard. From that moment, the church begins to break out. Well, that's a few-day period which is set inside of a Another context, about a 60-day period, which is the life of Christ in the early church, 30 years of the life of Christ, 30 years of the early church, which we have in the book of Acts. That 60 years is a blip in a much larger context that if we blow out farther, 3,000 years. From about, a, that's actually Abraham, 1,000 B.C., she should say David, the time of King David, about a thousand years before Christ, 500, when the book of Joel was written, and you think, what in the world is the book of Joel? I'm going to tell you in a few minutes. The book of Joel is actually quoted by Peter in his sermon in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2. It's said in the context, that moment, all the way up to today. But now let's look at the day. You see, what happens is this. We take a look at Acts 2.42 and say, okay, there's the church. You do these things you'll have joy. That moment was in context. The context is why joy was birthed. Let's look at Acts 2. Acts 2, a day in the life of some people who had recently decided to follow Jesus. And here's what happens. When the day of Pentecost came, and the day of Pentecost was about 50 years, 50 years, 50 days after Passover. And what it was, it was a festival where they celebrated the harvest. And so when, the day, when Pentecost came, about 40 years after Christ had left the planet, 50, 50, uh, 40 days, 50 days past Passover, all of the Jews who had been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, they returned for this big festival. And as that day happens, you got a bunch of disciples, about, you know, maybe a hundred, but 12 key ones. It says, they were all gathered in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest in each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Okay, so here's what happens. They're just sitting there minding their own business and suddenly they start speaking in other languages. And like there's tongues of fire that appear to be over their head. And what the writer Acts Luke says is all of them are filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in other tongues as the Lord enabled them. Now, this is what's happening. When Jesus left the planet, and you can read this in Acts 1-4, this is what he said. He said to this little group of disciples, okay, I'm leaving now, 
and you're going to take over the world. But right now, don't do anything for a little while, okay? Or else you're going to hurt yourself and others. Don't do anything until something happens. Wait for the promise that I said the Father would give you, which is the Holy Spirit, my actual presence to be with you. Wait till that happens, and you'll know when it happens. And when that happens, you'll receive power, and you'll be my witnesses to the edges of the earth. And they were like, okay. They have no idea what he's talking about. This is what he's talking about. And so they're gathered there, minding their own business, and suddenly they start speaking, you know, French. Not actually French. You get my point. (laughs) They start speaking all these languages, and it's a little freaky. So this is what happens. The people around them, and I'm just going to give you a little bit of the context. It says, Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together. And this is what they were saying. Okay, aren't these just Galilean workmen? How are they speaking all of our languages? Because everyone was hearing their own language spoken. And as they heard that, some of them were amazed, and they were like, what is it that's going on here? And others said, ah, ignore them. They're just drunk. Now, here is a moment for the disciples to choose to do something or nothing. They didn't plan this. You know, when this whole thing happened, it wasn't as if they'd been sitting back for the last 40 days sketching out how they're going to begin the church, a strategic plan to start 40 days later on Pentecost. And Peter said, all right, this is what we're going to do. Rosetta Stone, I want... I want you all to pick up different languages, 40-day crash course. You've got to get enough. You don't have to know the whole language, okay? Just some phrases. And then, Steve, can you create some imagery over our heads? So it looks like tongues of fire, and bam, off we go. This will start the church. They are totally shocked. This thing happens. They're unprepared. Life is dynamic. It's happening to them. And as they do so, Peter is going, I... He's never spoken before. And then some people say, ignore them. They're just drunk. And Peter, out of somewhere, and something that God has given him, stood up and he spoke. Untrained. They say public speaking is the greatest uh, fear of human beings. Well, Peter is now speaking off the cuff spontaneously to a crowd that doesn't want to believe him. Without preparation, he stands up and speaks. Said, then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you propose. S- suppose it's only nine in the morning. No, this was spoken by the prophet Joel. Somewhere between five and 900 years before, a guy named Joel wrote a prophecy, and the prophecy is either an allegory or it actually happened of locusts stripping the land. And in the midst of that, God called out to his people, and he said, would you return? Return. Your hearts have wandered from the one from whom you were made. Return. And they do. And as they return, God says two things. First of all, he says, I will restore your livelihood. I'll restore your grain, your wine. And then he says this passage. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Peter will go through that whole passage and he'll say, 
That's what's happening today. See, what has happened in that moment is God is making good on a promise, which is this, that Christianity, the death and resurrection of Jesus, is intended to provide an actual personal relationship for people with God. And when the Spirit comes in that moment, Peter's saying this is the fulfillment of what God has promised, is that there would not be a distant, theoretical, ivory tower God. There would be a God who is so close to you that he's inside you, and you will have an intimate connection with the God for whom you were made. This is what was prophesied, and this is what's happening. God is coming, and he's seeking each one of you. And Peter does really a killer message, seriously. Off the top of his head, without any training, he, he really knocks it out of the park. And then he, then he, brings, he brings it home, you know. He, he says this, and I'm, I'm looking a little farther in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. Do you ever have that moment where you're in the midst of an argument and you know you're wrong, but you're not going to give up? I've heard that this happens to people. <laughs> and in that moment, you know you're wrong. You know all along that what they're saying is correct, but somehow you've backed yourself into a corner and you can't seem to come off that. And so you will fight for that position with increasing tenacity. But deep down, you know it. And when you finally come clean, or so I've heard, when you finally come clean, you knew all along that you were fighting a losing battle one that you didn't even believe. What Peter seems to say then is, look, when Jesus was among you, you saw what he did. You pretended you didn't. You saw him raise people from the dead. And you admit that was a big deal. You saw him heal people. You saw him speak messages that went straight to your heart and you tried to push it back, but you knew all along that it was real. And now it's coming home. Because even though he was put to death. Peter will then go on to say, God raised him because death could not hold the Son of God. And as he was raised from the dead, he is now sent forth and he brings it back to the moment. He's now sent forth his spirit. And Peter says at the end of that, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, a little reminder, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. I mean, really, it's a, it's, a, it's a good message. And it says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter says, Repent and be baptized. All of you. Because this promise is for everyone. The promise of God to come near and dear to the hearts of human beings is for everyone and is for you today. yes, you were a part, you were complicit with his death on the cross. And yes, he's risen from the dead, but he's risen from the dead not to condemn you, but to forgive you. Won't you come? And it said 3,000 people said yes that day. 3,000. That's verse 41. And then we get to Acts 2.42. They gathered in the homes and broke bread 
and listened to the apostles' teaching, and they prayed. And there was joy. Why was there joy? There was joy because they had now been shared a dynamic connection with God's movement in the world, and they were a part of it. And so when they gathered in the home that night, that evening, they gathered in the home, having just lived through that moment, having realized that they were a part of something far bigger than themselves. See, we can sort of whitewash this passage so it sounds like, okay, Peter preached, 3,000 people said yes, you know, there was an altar call, he baptized them all, and bam! What happened was he preached this message, and then you get the sense there was this struggle. He said he kept pleading with them. And, and so what happens is these, these 12 apostles and the few others who were with them now had 3,000 people asking them questions. And so they spent the day answering their questions and talking to them and praying with them and encouraging them. It wasn't simply this mass production. They got intimately involved, and it was chaos, totally unprepared for it. And so their entire day was spent exhausted, engaging other people's lives and what their struggles with and their, their grief and their conviction and offering them hope. And then they gathered together and they ate. And they looked around at one another, amazed at how God had used them. And they talked about the stories they had shared and, and what happened. And you remember when we were, and that guy came to us and whoever thought he would come? The room would have been absolutely abuzz with what had happened. That's why there was joy. We experience joy to the level that we invest in something that matters. This may sound a little bit rude. It's probably not rude. Well, you can tell me later what it sounds. Imagine this. You now hear that there's a really cool new church in Jerusalem. And they've gathered in a home that night. And so you think, hey, I'd like to go to a cool new church. I think I'll go there. And so you show up and you walk in and somebody's up there speaking. And quite honestly, he's not great. See, you know, the apostles, they didn't know anything. I mean, nothing. They, they weren't trained how to, te- they'd walked with Jesus for three years. They, they, weren't, they weren't teaching Bible studies. Suddenly, they got thousands of people in their teaching. I, I remember the first time I taught something, it was bad. It was, it was really bad. And then I remember my first paper in seminary, it was on the Old Testament, which, which I had never read. And so <laughs> I wrote it, and my professor wrote me back, and he said, um, it's very well written, uh, however, it's heresy. <laughs> and I got a B, and I was really happy, because I thought a B for heresy isn't bad, so it must have been really well written. <laughs> if you had pulled some people in a room, let's say 3,000, and had me teach them, not going to be good. So you walk into the church in Jerusalem, the teachings, honestly, it's mediocre. Sound system's a little off. It's kind of hot in here, too. I, you know, really, haven't they ever thought about the crowded level here? If it's a fire, I bet this is over the fire code too. And boy, that guy is going on and on and on. You know what? I, I actually think what he just said is incorrect. I think, that might, I think that might be heresy. And you know, I appreciate them having the food, but it's a little bit fatty. 
And, and I don't think they prepared well enough. It doesn't look like they expected us here. You know what? It was okay. They, they, some of these people seem to really like it, but I, if you had just walked into that church that evening, I don't think it would have been great. And yet, the people who were gathered there were experiencing this profound sense of joy and contentment. Why? Because they had invested in something together, and that's what made that moment full of joy. We falsely believe that we manufacture joy by what we see and what we experience. I said, I don't know, maybe six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, some weeks ago, that boredom is a new word in the English language. It's not very old. Didn't, didn't really appear until late 18th century, 1800s, I mean. It, there wasn't such a word. And I think I said at the time, I don't know why that is. I think I know why now. I could be wrong, <laughs> obviously. But I think I know why. That was the first period of time where people had the leisure to watch life. Not do it. Watch it. We have more leisure than any culture in any point in history. We have more possibilities of diversion and entertainment. If you have cable, you have hundreds of channels to watch. You have movies to watch. You have concerts to go to. You have restaurants around the corner. We have more possibilities to watch life than we ever did. I'm as much a fan as movies and spectator sports as anyone is. But if I believe I'm going to have a life of joy by what I watch, I'm sadly mistaken. When we watch, we critique. And when we watch, we keep looking for Jack and he's always in the next room. When we invest, our hearts come alive. You're going to see a, um, a man get baptized later on in this service. And I don't always do this, but in his video, I went into the room as, he, as we taped his video and I asked him the question. I really only asked him one question. And he told his story. And you'll see it in a few minutes. But as he told his story, I had this incredible sense of joy watching it. I was so caught up in it because I, I realized that we were sharing something together. We had shared things along the way here, and we were sharing this moment of impact in his life. I wasn't watching this video and thinking, huh, that's kind of interesting. I, I realized there was a connection that I had with him and he with me, and it was electric for me. When you invest your life in something that matters, you experience joy. I'm not sure I know all of what that's about. I think it has to do with two things. One is this, is that when we engage ourselves in God's purpose in the world, in, in real way, not, not because we're supposed to, not out of, out of duty. Like, like, like I said, the disciples, they didn't plan this day the day was there before them and they invested their lives in it. When, they inve when we invest our lives in what God is doing in the world, 
whether it's talking with someone or running something or caring for someone. When we do that, we're connected with God. What I I mean by that is this. We often view in Christianity, so this is the model for how you grow, is that you serve, 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 and then you go back by yourself and you grow. Connect with God. Go out and serve. Connect with God. It appears to me that right now where God is, is moving throughout the world. He was that, there that day at Pentecost. They weren't having a little Bible study. In the midst of that gathering of people, there was God, and so there people were connected with him. When we move with God's purposes in the world, we're connected with God. When we're connected with God, we experience the one in whom there is fullness of joy. If you move with God, you'll experience joy. I think also, and I cannot prove this, and I'm not even sure if it's hardwiring, whether it's natural or whether it's part of our brokenness, but it seems very much the case that our experience is when we invest together in something. There's just a profound sense of joy in, in the process, even when it doesn't go well. It doesn't have to be a success. There's something about engaging together in purposes that are important that brings joy as we share those moments. Christianity is just not a spectator sport. And all of us at some level turn it into that. It's a sport of engagement. It's not a sport of engagement because you have to, because you're forced to, because somebody wants you to. It's a sport of engagement when we get caught up when we get caught up with God and the opportunities that are before us like they were before Peter and we engage. If we want to experience joy, we'll step into God's purposes. This week, this is what I'd like to ask you to do. Last week, I asked you to read the passage in um, Luke where, where Jesus gives the, the, the phrase, um, Take my yoke upon you. This week, I want you to read Acts chapter 2, but I want you to read it with someone. I want you to read it with a friend. I want you to read it with a partner. I want you to read it with your small group. I want you to read it with someone. And as you read it, I want you to talk to one another about what happens as you read that, as you watch the dynamism of the passage. And as you read it, I want you to talk to one another about where is God calling your heart to engage? I'll say this final thing. You do not have to engage. Our our world gives us so many opportunities to not. And I'm just struck by that moment where Peter had a choice not to engage. When they said, they're all drunk, he could have looked at the other side and said, they think we're drunk, but we know we're not. We know we're okay. Let's get out of here, guys. We don't need to take this. He engaged. Nobody has to. But joy isn't found on the sidelines. Joy is found when we invest with one another and what God's doing in the world around us. Let's pray. Lord, would you speak to our hearts about neither duty nor distance, but about meaningful engagement. Would you show 
each one of us the places and encourage us not simply to join something, but to, to keep our hearts open every day about where you're moving and make those choices every day to engage. It's so much more than joining a ministry, which is great. But it's about waking up every day and saying, God, would you use me today? My heart is available for you. Would you show me how I can connect with other people and serving the world around me? Let us live with that sort of vitality that produces a palpable joy. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. As I told you, we're baptizing a man today named Michael Ginther. And I want you to watch his story. I sat with him. I asked him one question. And with very little prompting after that, here was the story he told. Been attending warehouse for three and a half to four years. Wife and, and three children. Uh, I sell commercial heating and air conditioning for a living. Uh, my story of coming to accept Jesus is one through the battles with, of addiction. I'm a recovering addict. As a child, I would lie and manipulate, you know, more than the average child. I mean, that, that's what my life consisted of. Always, always, my nerves were always shot because I was always afraid I was gonna be caught in a lie. Up into middle school, early high school, I began to use alcohol uh, excessively. You know, graduated high school, started college, uh, had the opportunity to go work for my family's business. Still managed to keep things under wrap. Was still living out of control. Uh, got married, uh, began gambling uncontrollably. Hid that for a while until my wife found out about that and still didn't really know what was wrong with me. Just thought that's what guys do or just, I really wasn't sure what was going on. My addiction really progressed. I want to say at the age of 32, 33, I tried cocaine for the first time. And from that first time, it was a rapid progression over a year and a half to where I had reached my bottom, where my father had to fire me from our family business. All my secrets were out. You know, my, my wife knew, my family knew. I was at the I had reached my bottom. Didn't know where to go. I knew something had to change. Sort of was throwing up the the Hail Mary prayers. You know, God, I, I don't even believe in you, but please bail me out of this one. Had a, doc, a doctor that's a friend of mine. He mentioned to me I needed to maybe look into a 12-step program. My wife and I went to my first 12-step meeting. Met my first sponsor in the meeting. Just the things every time he would he would share in a meeting, I could relate to what he was saying. It was like, it was my story. He went out on a limb and asked, you know, told me that he, he attended a church in Charlotte called Warehouse 242. From the first time here, I didn't have a nervous feeling about it. It was, it was something different. I felt like I fit in, like, I don't know, like I didn't have to put on a, that that facade for, for the first time. You know, at, at that time, I didn't want to accept that it was Jesus Christ. I didn't want to be a Christian. You know, I, looking back now and trying to figure some of that out, I think some of it was the fact that I'd known the things I had done and the way I treated people. And I didn't think I deserved that. The last thing I wanted to, to be 
was a Christian. I remember coming to Warehouse and Rookie was my sponsor at the time. He didn't give me a heads up that he was going to be sharing his story on the stage. When we got here, we always sit in the same chair. I don't know if that's a church thing or, or what that's all about, but when we got somebody was in our seats in front of the stage where we never sit, there was a row of six or eight chairs open, so that's where we ended up sitting. Looked on the stage and there's two chairs there. Still didn't know what was going on. Church service started and Rookie comes out onto the stage, or my sponsor comes out onto the stage. And the line of sight between he and I was, was right there. If I would have been sitting off to the side, I would have been out of sight, but there, there was a reason why I sat there. Uh, he made eye contact with me and began to share his story and our stories, like a lot of addict stories, connect very clearly. Uh, still was battling with the Jesus Christianity thing, wasn't sure where I wanted to go. I knew that's who brought me here. You know, I knew looking back at all the doors that had been opened and why I was here, I knew it. So I, I prayed in church before service one day I prayed I said just let me know that I'm in the right place just something and the service started I don't remember the message uh, I remember Bruce was speaking and I could not stop crying I couldn't stop I was sort of trying to laugh in between and try to make it go away and I, I, I was just overwhelmed with it uh, sat there and reflected and was sort of ashamed you know here all along Jesus had pursued me even when I was as far away from him as, as a person could possibly be, continued to pursue me. And here, still I was at this point, not wanting to accept him. At, that was the point I, I surrendered and accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I had seen other people's stories and other people's baptism, and I really enjoyed that. You know, I enjoyed seeing that in them. It gave me hope. You know, and that it didn't... I don't know if inspiration is the right word, but it inspired me a little bit. And I wanted to, you know, Bruce always talks about the marker moments. I wanted to have that moment where I could stick my flag in the ground and say, here, here it is. Lots of emotion. You know, I, from seeing the other people, what their experience, and I get emotional watching people that I really don't know go through that. And I know it's a special time and I can just anticipate a rush of emotion and I also want people to know that, that there is hope because if anybody if anybody can find Jesus Christ if I can then anybody can because I, I was not there. <laughs>